The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Please join me as we, as we enter into a time of prayer. Lord, this morning we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our Redeemer, and our Rescuer. Amen. Well, you're all still here, which is a very comforting thing for me to see. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as I'd been preparing for this sermon, I, uh, I had a dream, and uh, the dream was that we were in a new building, and it wasn't this building, it, was, it looked more like the Colosseum, you know, big uh, rock structure, and I was supposed to preach, and just before I was supposed to come up, I realized that I didn't have the microphone on me, so I made my way to the back, and and asked Terrence for a microphone, and he said, you don't need a microphone. The acoustics in this building are fantastic. And I said, okay. So I started to make my way to the front, and as I'm making my way to the front, I notice that everyone else is getting up and leaving <laughs> the auditorium, which was very discouraging. So in my dream, I'm very discouraged, and, but I'm still making my way to the front, and I feel a tap on my shoulder, and it's Irma Kelm, and Marilyn Parker, and Trudy Patzer behind me. And I look at them, and the three of them said to me, you know, even if everyone leaves, we'll be here to encourage you. <laughs> so, and that's, I think, the, the, their presence in my life in, this, in the church. Uh, they've always, always been around, always encouraging. They've taken me to task a few times, uh, but they do it out of love. So it was very encouraging to see that even in my dream, they would stay, even if everyone left. Well, today we're going to look at, we're going to continue in our, our study of uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, we're going to look at uh, the life of a man who doesn't get a lot of uh, press when we talk, talk about the scriptures in the Bible, and it, his name is Lot. Uh, there's a lot to talk about Lot, a uh, lot to cover, uh, in fact, uh, and it's not for, for good reasons. You know, that's, that's the thing about Lot's life. He made some really foolish decisions. He made some really bad decisions in his life. And, uh, and I thought, you know, if, uh, none of you can relate to this, but I've, I've made some poor decisions and foolish mistakes in my life, and would it be appropriate for me to share anything with you? Uh, and I couldn't find anything in my life that I could share uh, until, I've, until I thought of two things. One involved my dad and my mom and me, and there was some discipline involved in that. And I thought, no, you've already gone through two, two stories of a dead hamster and a rabbit being shot at, so you don't need to hear any more stories about that. Um, and then the second one involved uh, a police car. And it was an OPP car, the Ontario Provincial Police. So a few years ago, nearly 20, 21 years ago, I was driving back from Thunder Bay. I was late for work. And somewhere between Ignace and Dryden, I decided that I should speed. So I decided to speed. And as I'm driving, going fast on TransCanada, I noticed that there was a car on the other side of the highway. It was a purple car. And I thought, who drives a purple car? So I looked at this person in derision. The, the windows were blackened. I couldn't see who was inside. I flew by this car. And this car turned around, 
and started to follow me. And I thought, oh, finally, this guy knows where he's going. He came, came up behind me, the lights came on, and it was a police officer. So the first foolish, foolish decision I made, speed up. Don't do that. That's not the right thing to do. The second foolish decision I made, I thought, you know, if I crack a couple of jokes, he's going to let me go. <laughs> so the police officer comes up to the driver's side window, and, and he's standing there, and he says, sir, do you know why I've pulled you over? And I said, yes, yes, I, I actually do know. Uh, by the way, who drives a purple car? <laughs> and, and I thought he was going to crack at that, but he did not. He was very, very serious, and he asked me again, sir, do you know why I've pulled you over? And I said, yes, I, I know why you've pulled me over. I was speeding. And he said, yes. Do you know how fast you were going? I said, yes, I was going 120 in a 90 zone. And, uh, and he said, oh, so you know. I said, yes. And, and by the way, um, that's 30 kilometers over the posted speed limit. <laughs> and, and he said, yes, that is. And I said to him again, which is 33.3% faster than I should have been going. And he's looking at me and he says, oh, you're really good with numbers, eh? <laughs> I said, well, you know, yeah. So he took my driver's license, took the registration, went back to his car. About 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, he came back and said, sir, I'm going to give you a speeding ticket. So that's fine. Uh, he said, it's, it's $10. And I thought, wow, $10? And he said, sir, since you're so good with numbers, you'll be able to figure out that it's $10 for every kilometer you were going over the speed limit. <laughs> and I said, $300? And he said, you got it. And he turned around <laughs> and walked back to his car and left. And you know, the, the, every fiber of the in idiot inside me wanted to say, it took you that long to figure that out? <laughs> and who drives a purple car? But the Holy Spirit was good that day and he, he shut my mouth. I think we can, all, we can all relate to stupid stuff like that. I wish I, I can say that that was the last time, the only time I'd done stuff like this, but that's not true. I didn't even talk to my sister or my wife or my children because I'm sure they would have given me lots more material. <laughs> we all make foolish mistakes. We all make foolish mistakes. And the man that we're going to look at today, Lot, he did the same thing. You know, he, he made some very, very poor choices. And we're going to cover a lot of uh, the, the scripture today. We're going to go through chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 19. We're going to cover the entire life of Lot in one morning. So we're gonna get going here. And I'm not gonna read the entire life, but I'm gonna give you some highlights of Lot's life here. He was Abraham's nep nephew, excuse me. After his father died, he lived with uh, his grandfather and his two uncles and all of their families. He traveled with Abraham until there was a conflict between his herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. There wasn't enough pasture, so they carried on. And they decided that they should split up at that point. Uh, he chose to go and live in the plains of a city called Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were three other cities in that region where he chose to settle. He was captured by a king. There was a battle of nine kings. 
One of the kings took Lot captive, took him away. His uncle, Lot, uh, Abe, comes back with 318 men, rescues him. Lot go, decides to go back and live in the same place where he was captured from. And eventually he moves into the city of Sodom, where he rises to prominence in the civic and corporate life as the city continues to descend into sin, deeper and deeper into sin. Then God pronounces judgment on, on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he chooses to rescue Lot. Two angels arrive. Lot tries to save them from the men of Sodom and offers his daughters to the men of Sodom. Angels remove Lot, his wife, and his daughter from, daughters from the city. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt when she obeys the divine instruction to not look back from where she, had, uh, where she was coming from. And then finally, Lot's daughters commit incest with him, resulting in two sons, Moab, who was the father of the Moabites, and Banami, who was the father of the Ammonites. And those two nations end up being a pain in the neck, a thorn in the side of God's people for centuries. This is the end of all we know about Lot in the Old Testament. And it would be a terrible end if this is where it ends. His life as it's given to us is not a shining example of how to live, especially when we compare it with the life of his uncle Abraham, who is in the hall of faith in the New Testament. And so as I was preparing and I was reading over and over these, these three chapters, I found that every time I read about Lot, I got a little puffed up and Lot became a little smaller in my eyes. Every time I read, I would think, what kind of an idiot was this man? He made so many poor decisions, so many decisions that do not make sense. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you are really not that different. You are really not that different from Lot. And, by the way, if you want to see what I think of Lot, you have to go to the New Testament. And that's going to be our anchor passage this morning. That's where we're going to go. Will you stand as we read from 2 Peter? Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought, flood, brought the flood on its ungodly people, just protected Noah as preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them as examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, this is where you have to pause. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man, nothing that we read about Lot in the Old Testament comes across as being righteous. And yet God looks at him and says, a righteous man. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, 
and the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The narrative of uh, Lot's life in the book of Genesis serves as a stark reminder for each one of us that even though we may be believers in Jesus Christ, it doesn't stop us from making foolish decisions. Being a believer doesn't immune us or doesn't make us immune from falling prey to our own devices, to our own decision-making, decisions that are triggered by the world or by own flesh. We still have that capacity to make poor decisions. And so when we look at Lot, we look at a number of things. We're going to look at three things this morning that he did not have. And I think it will do us well to try to attain those. The first thing that we see in Lot's, absent in Lot's life is this. Living by faith and not by sight. Lot did not live by faith. He lived by sight. You know, it would do us well to remember that living by faith is what we are called to do as believers. You see, early on in the journey, as I've already mentioned, there was a conflict between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen. There wasn't enough pasture. They had grown rich. They had lots more cattle, lots more livestock. And of course, the land could only support so much. And so they decided that it was time to part ways. Abraham goes to Lot and he says to Lot, look, there's not enough pasture for all of us. We are family. There should not be any fighting among us. Why don't we split up? And if you decide to go right, I will go to the left. And if you go to the left, I will go to the right. A very clear choice. And one that is actually very contradictory to the Asian Middle Eastern culture. As, as his uncle, Abraham had the first right to anything that the family owned. It would have been perfectly within the cultural norm for him to say to Lot, look, I'm going to take this side and you have to go that way. But Lot is given the choice. And in this case, Abraham proves one more time why he is in the hall of faith. You see, Abraham's decision was not based on what he could see. It was based on what God's promise was. He knew that God had called him and said, I will take you to the promised land. And so he knew that whether he went left or right, God was with him. God was going to be his provider and his provisioner. This is a simple choice that is placed before Lot. And of course, the Bible is very clear in Genesis 13, verses 10 and 12, we read, Lot looked and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the city of the plains and pitched his tents near Sodom. He made a decision by sight, not by faith. A decision based on what he could see rather than what he believed. And if there's a clear pattern that distinguishes these two men, it's found in verse 12. Abraham followed God and lived in the promised land. Lot did not follow God and ended up in a city that was destined for destruction. There's also an interesting wordplay in Lot's statement. 
He talks about the fact that this land that he's looking at looks like the garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt. Now, if you've read the Bible, if you've gone through it, you know that that's two stark examples of living. The Bible treats the, Lord, the, the garden of the Lord as fellowship with God. That's the analogy, that's the allegory that's used. Egypt, on the other hand, represents worldly pleasures, worldly gains, material possessions, and so on. Those two are diametrically opposed to each other. And yet, Lot in his statement says, this land looks like the land of Egypt, and it looks like the garden of the Lord. And you wonder if Lot was trying to live a believer's life while still taking in all the advantages, all the benefits, all the pleasures and possessions that the world had to offer. If that is true, then many of the Christians today are no different. We try to live a church life, and we also want to gain all the worldly pleasures and materials. We're still trying to live in the garden of the Lord, in our fellowship with him, but we're also trying to gain everything that the land of Egypt has to offer to us. The tension to live by faith and not by sight is still with us today. It's still here. How many times do we talk to young students who are coming out of high school and they're trying to make these decisions? Young adults who are trying to decide who to marry, what careers to choose. Should they go into a secular profession or should they go into ministry? Those are all big questions with huge consequences if you make the wrong decisions. And so in a case like that, we tend to rely on our senses, we tend to rely on what our logic can, can explain, we tend to rely on our own wisdom, what we can see, what we can touch, what we can hear, what we can justify rationally, that's the decision we go with. And I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not downplaying the importance of due diligence. In fact, when we exercise due diligence, we're exercising the gifts that God has given us. And yet every time we make a faith-based decision, there's always that one final step that you cannot take without God's presence. So don't discount due diligence, don't discount counting on your experiences, but remember that faith-based decisions ultimately are God-driven decisions. I think there's a scene in, um, in one of the Indiana Jones movies that, that's a classic example of what that kind of looks like. Sam, do you have that going? Must believe, boy. You must believe. 
How many of us have felt like that when we've made those big decisions in life and God said, just take a step forward, just follow me? Now, I just want to clarify and disclaimer, Indiana Jones is not the perfect movie to base your theology on. <laughs> that was just an example of stepping out and taking a leap of faith. You know, taking a leap of faith, living in faith and not, not by sight requires something that we can do. As believers, we've been given this gift of community. We're gonna talk a bit about that in a moment. But if you were to, to follow a pattern to understand God's will, then there are three or four things that I think are key elements in that. First of all, there has to be, the decision has to be bathed in prayer. You have to go before the throne of God and continue to ask him which direction he wants you to go in. That's, I think, the key fundamental point for discerning God's will for your life, for making these faith-based decisions. The second, staying with the theme of peace, is passages, passages of scripture that speak to you, that answer you. So prayer, going to your Bible, reading the word of God, and seeing what God's exposing to you and opening up to you. Then there are people in your life, your, your spouse if you're married, your family, your close friends, that you trust. Ask them to intercede on your behalf. Ask them for their wisdom, and they can share that with you as well. And the final thing, I think, which is the most important thing, is that when you're about to make a decision for God, you will always have his peace. If there's, all, if there's ever a moment of doubt, if there's ever a moment of uncertainty in your heart, keep going back to prayer, keep going back to the scriptures, keep going back to the people who are praying with you until you have peace that God has given you about that decision. Faith-based decisions are not easy. They don't ever get easier. Uh, in fact, the more you live by faith, the tougher it sometimes becomes. But what gets easier is your understanding of who God is and why he's invested in you and interested in you. The remarkable thing is that as you build these faith-based decisions into your life, your experience of God grows bigger and bigger and bigger, and you learn to rely on him more and more and more. Lot did not do that, but a believer is called to live by faith, not by sight. The second thing that we find missing in Lot's life is that he did not live on a firm foundation. He may have started out on a firm foundation, but he did not live on a firm foundation. In fact, he ended up on a very slippery slope. We see that when he left Abraham, he traveled with Abraham all through the earlier part of his life. He traveled with him into Egypt and came back out until he decided to go his own way. And when he did that, he set his eyes towards the cities that were, that were destined to be destroyed, that were sinful cities. He set his eyes towards them and he moved into the plains around those cities. And eventually, he moved into Sodom. You know, this, this physical journey that, that Abraham or Lot is on is an indicator almost, an allegory of his spiritual life. He was surrounded by his family, he was walking in faith, and then he chooses, makes a decision that his, that's his downfall. His slide is so complete, in fact, that when we see him in chapter 19, he's sitting at the city gates. He wasn't just hanging out at the city gates. 
That's a role of prominence that he was given. He was either uh, part of the elders of the city or he was on the city council or maybe, uh, you know, whatever the equivalent would have been of a mayor of the city. Those are the men who would sit at the, at the city gates and welcome visitors into the city. They would find out why people were coming into the city. They would be on the lookout for anyone coming in against the city. So Lot had a place of prominence in this, in this town. He was an immigrant, he had just moved in, and now he was embedded in the civic and civil life of the city. And I wonder if he started out sincerely, as most of us do. He wanted to make a change. He wanted to, he wanted to be the salt of the earth among these men. And yet somehow we find that he is not. You know, he may have gained prominence financially and politically and so on, but in getting that and getting those, those influences, he, he lost his spiritual influence on the, on the city. He had no, no spiritual influence at all. In fact, when we see that the city is about to be destroyed, the angels ask him to go and get anyone that he wanted saved. So he goes to the two men who are engaged to his daughters and they laugh at him. When he tells them of the coming destruction, they laugh at him. Or when the men of Sodom come and attack his home, they don't listen to him at all. When he tells them, don't spare, spare my guests, they're ready to attack him. He had no influence whatsoever because he was no longer on a firm foundation. He had compromised so much that he was left with zero influence on the world around him. You know, it's the same thing in our lives. It may start with a little compromise here or there, taking, I don't know, supplies from your office, uh, having a drink at your, at your company dinner, watching a television show that maybe takes the Lord's name in vain, or glorifies and sensationalizes extramarital affairs, or following celebrities, influencers on social media that we know for a fact do not follow God's will and God's plan for their lives. It starts with small compromises, but with every compromise, the firm foundation that you were on tilts just a little bit more. And eventually you get to a point where where it's too late. You have lost your effectiveness, you have lost your testimony, and there is nothing you can do to, to impact the world around you. How do we stay on the firm foundation? I think the best way to do is to start your day in the Word. Start your day in prayer with the Lord. And let me read you a passage of, or a verse of Scripture, two verses. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Does anyone know which book of the Bible that passage is in? Lamentations. The saddest book in the Bible has a verse that says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know, if you read anything else in the Bible, or not, if you just read that one verse every morning when you start your day, how can you have a bad day? How can you have a bad day if your firm foundation is just this one verse? We're not talking about the other 30,000 verses in the Bible. 
We're not talking about the presence of Jesus on this earth. We're talking about the saddest book in the Bible that has a verse that encourages you for your day. That's your firm foundation. If you're not living on a firm foundation, if you're not steady on the firm foundation, you're going to be on a slippery slope. You know, one of the things that we've appreciated about being part of this church family is that over the last 20 years, excuse me, over the last 20 years, there have been church trends and worship fads and, and preaching styles that have come and gone. But this church still believes in the old-time religion. And that is something that you cannot buy. That is something that you cannot sell. That is something that you just have to own. Every morning, every day, you have to stand on the firm foundation. There was, a, there was a couple of articles a number of years ago published in Winnipeg Free Press, and the articles were just about uh, two weeks apart. And one of the articles said that churches that adapt to the culture and make themselves more acceptable by doing away with the traditional doctrines see an explosive growth in the first five to 10 years. And then after that, there is a decline. And the exit interviews that the researchers did of the people who were leaving these churches basically revealed that people still felt empty in their souls and in their spirits. The second article, which was written by a completely different uh, columnist, basically said, if, if you're a church that believes in traditional doctrine, then over a period of time, you will see a greater impact on the people that are in your pews and the people among whom you're placed. So these churches impact the society and the individuals who come in them. The third thing that Lot did not do, and we would do well if we follow, is to live in community and not in isolation. Lot was part of a Middle Eastern family, and if you know anything about Asian or Middle Eastern families, it's that everyone, everyone is family. You know, he had his grandfather, he has two uncles, their aunts, you know, cousins and everything. He was surrounded by family. And this is a cultural thing. This is a very cultural thing. I've, uh, I've worked downtown for nearly 22 years now, and, and I'm starting to see a younger generation of East Indian um, consultants, East Indian kids who are working downtown. And sometimes when we interview them for, for my firm, um, you know, they'll come in, they'll sit across from, from myself and one of my partners, and they would address my partners as Mr. DiStefano or, or Mr. Alexander. But to me, they address me as uncle. And the, the first couple of times it happened, my partner said, do you know these kids? <laughs> I said, I have no clue. I have no idea who they are. Well, why are they calling you uncle? I said, well, because I have gray hair, and I'm brown, and I'm from the same country they're from. That's what it is. It's the culture, the community, and that's how they connect. And that's what Lot was in when he was with Abraham. But then he chose to leave Abraham and lived on his own, and in doing so, he severed all his ties with a faith-based community. He was no longer connected to other believers around him. And how do we know that? The Bible gives us the answer for that as well. 
When God came down with two of his angels and met Abraham, his intent was to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they meet up with, that, with Abraham. The two angels keep carrying on on their journey towards the two cities. And there's a classic exchange between Abraham, the classic intercessory exchange between Abraham and God. Abraham says to God, Lord, if there are 50 people in this city, would you spare it? And God says, yes. If there are 50 righteous people, I will spare it. Abraham said, Lord, I don't want to be too bold, but if there are 45 righteous people in this city, will you spare it? And Lord says, yes, I will spare the city. What about 30? Yes. What about 20? Yes. What about 10? Yes. I will spare Sodom if there are 10 righteous people in the city. And we know what happened. The city was destroyed. There were not even 10 righteous people. There were not even 10 church people in that city. Lot's family, four people. There weren't even another six that they could have worshiped with. He chose to let go of the community that he was part of. A Christian is not called to live the Lone Ranger life. We're not called to be we're not called to be the Lone Ranger. When you become a Christian, when you become a believer, you're brought into the family of God. You're brought into the body of Christ. And this body takes care of you, it ministers to you, and it holds you accountable. That's the purpose of this body. But when a Christian chooses to close themselves off from other believers, they put a target on their, on their chest. The devil's plan, like the predators that we see in the wild, is to separate the prey from the rest of the herd. And when a Christian chooses to do that to themselves, they become a bigger target for the enemy who's out looking for you. Christian fellowship is not just about showing up on Sunday for two hours, it's more than that. And while the corporate worship is very important, I think fellowship is important as well. If you've somehow closed yourself off to other believers, Open your heart, open your doors, and let yourself be a part of a family. Now that's pretty depressing when we look at Lot's life, what he did not do, what we ought to do. But there is, there is hope. And we are reminded in Second Peter that God is our great rescuer. He does not look over your faults, your mistakes, your bad decisions, because he loves you. And even though Lot's life shows us that he was living by sight and not by faith, he was living on a slippery slope and not on a firm foundation, he was living without community of believers and completely isolated, we see that God was still on his side. God was still there to rescue him because anything that you've done, if you're relating to Lot, Anything you've done is not that big for God's grace to overpower it and overshadow it. God's forgiveness is bigger than anything you've ever done or anything that you are going to do. And yet somehow we continue to beat ourselves up, we continue to look at the mistakes we've made, and we continue to think that we need forgiveness over and over and over again. I don't know what you're thinking about. 
as you're remembering things that you wish you had not done, walking out on your family, extramarital affairs, unplanned pregnancies, succumbing to substance abuse, or maybe it's not that those big things. Maybe it's something much smaller than that. And yet you're playing the what if videotape in your head. What if I had not done this? What if I had done this? And you know, God's already passed that. He's already moved beyond that. He has already taken your sin, and it says he's moved it as far as east is from the as, as far as east is from the west. That's a picture we fail to understand sometimes. East and west can never come together. So when God removes your sin from you, it has no place back in your life, whether as a regret or something that you beat yourself up over, because God has removed it from you. No regrets. You know, there's a cliche that you can't drive a car forward if you're looking in the rear view mirror. That's a believer's life. We look through the windshield, we look forward because God has made it possible for us to do that. There is nothing you can do that will drain God's storehouse of grace and there's nothing that will cause him to love you less. And God comes to your rescue. He will come to your rescue. There are times when he'll provide the rescue through people, as he did in case of Lot when he was taken by the king, taken captive, and Abraham comes to rescue him. You know, that was a perfect opportunity for Lot to not go back to the plains where he was living. Find a new place, find community. He chose to go back. But, Lot, but God still provides people in our lives who come to us as his rescue. And then God also provides heavenly rescues. In case of Lot, he brought the two angels. The two angels come to his door, they remove Lot and his wife and his two daughters, they take them out of the city, and then they destroy the city. I still believe that God works that way. God still does heavenly, divine interventions. I'll share with you a very quick story as we, as we start to wrap this up. I grew up in Pakistan, as most of you know. I went to a college that was uh, a very radical college. It was a very politically charged college, and the student union there was the wing of a political party, a radical political party in the country. So often we would have riots and protests and everything, to the point that there was a police station right across from the college, and it was one of the largest police stations. It had thousands of police officers on duty all the time. We usually had two or three trucks filled with policemen sitting at each entrance and exit of the college. And there was some escalation that was going on. I went to college one day, and I've never told my dad this story, but he'll, he'll hear it today. Uh, but as I got into the college, I heard the news that there was going to be a riot. But it was rumor, no one knew what was going to happen. But shortly after I got there, uh, you know, we started to see protesters gathering and so on, and uh, suddenly there's tear gas shells coming into the co compound from the police officers and there's no way I could go. There was no way for me to run. Uh, I couldn't stay in the college because then I would have been rounded up by the police. I couldn't leave. It was a no-win scenario. And as I'm walking through one of the corridors, I was just praying, Lord, what do I do? I, I'm not part of the rioters, but the police don't know that. How do I stay safe? And before I know it, somebody walked right by me, tapped me on my shoulder and said, 
come and follow me. So I just followed this guy. He looked like a young guy, looked like a young professor who had just joined the university I, or college. I, I walked right behind him, trying to keep pace with him. He walked into a building. He was ahead of me by a few feet. He opened a door, and as I came up to him, he pushed me into the room and said, stay in here, don't come out. I will come and tell you when it's safe. He locked the door, left, and while I'm sitting in this room cowering, I could hear students running through the hallways and police trying to kick the doors down and broken glass and, and, and tear gas shells and everything. I sat there for about two and a half hours, wondering what was going on. And then remembering, okay, something's happening, but I, the guy told me never to leave this building. So I stayed there, and about three hours later, I heard the, a knock on the door, and then I heard the lock being opened. So I jumped, I wanted to see who this guy was, and I heard him say to me, it's safe now, you can go home. I flung the door open, and there's no one in the hallway. And I thought, okay, that guy was really fast, but I gotta get home. So I got on my bike, I got home, and then for the next half a year, I tried to find this professor. No one heard, had heard of him, no one knew what his description was, no one knew what faculty he was a part of, and finally I had to, sit, to, to convince myself that it was divine intervention and someone from God had come and protected me that day. When I opened the door and left, the whole campus was completely empty. There was broken glass, there was broken windows, doors kicked in, and I walked through all of that, grabbed my bicycle, and went home. God still intervenes in miraculous ways. And if you're a Christian today, God is still for you. You know, as we start to wrap up our, our service, I'm reminded of one final picture in Revelation of God rescuing his people. I'm a pre-tribulation guy. I believe that the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation period. You may believe in a different interpretation of that, and that's fine. Our point of divi division is not what we believe about rapture and tribulation. Our point of unity is that Jesus is coming back, and he is taking his people with him. And when we stand before God on the final day of judgment, you know, the Muslims are going to tell him how much they prayed and how many pilgrimages they went on. And the Hindus and the Buddhists will tell him how many good deeds they had done. And the, well, the atheists are going to be totally embarrassed because... <laughs> but the Christian, the Christian is going to stand before God and say, I'm not even worthy to be here. I'm not even worthy. But I am here because you see me through the righteousness of your son. All the sins, all the stains that I bear on my soul are covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's it. That is the only reason we have to stand before God. Is that your reality? Is that your reality today? You know, if you've, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Today is not a bad day to do that. Today is a day, March 8th, 2020, when you can place your trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's been working in your life. 
He's been leading you to this point. And if he is prompting you today, you should say yes. And if you're a believer and you're living in regret, if you think you've done things that God cannot forgive or forget, you're wrong. He has already forgiven you and he has already forgotten it. Because he loves you because of his son. You know, as we, as the worship team comes up, and I lead us in a prayer to close. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe a couple of prayers. I think I'm going to lead, lead you in a prayer if you're deciding to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. As everyone bows and closes their eyes, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. This is a decision that you make between you and God today. And if you choose to come and tell one of the pastors or myself or people at the back who are, who are willing to pray with you or waiting to pray with you, that would be fantastic. It will give us great joy. But let me lead you in a prayer to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ as you accept him as your savior. And then mm -hmm. after we're done with that, I'm just gonna pray another prayer for, for the believers in the room, myself, that that the Lord will show his mercy and grace and remind us that he has already forgiven all our faults and all our mistakes. Would you please bow with me? As I lead us in prayer, please feel free to just pray in your heart and direct it to, to the Lord. He can hear you. He is waiting for you with open arms to accept you into his family. The work is already done. Jesus has already done the work. You just have to accept his, his uh, sacrifice. Father God, this morning I confess that I have walked away from you, that I have not thought of you as my Lord and Savior at all. I've lived a life that is sinful. I've been comfortable in my sin, and yet the Holy Spirit's been leading my heart towards you. And God, this morning I want to take that step to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I confess that I am a sinner and without Jesus, I have no hope. The work is already done on the cross and in the grave. When Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the grave, all the work for salvation, my salvation, was complete. And this morning, Lord, I accept that gift and I give my life to you as I make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. And in his name I pray, amen. Father God, as a believer who's walked with you over this time, from the time that I made a decision to be in your family, I have made decisions that have dishonored you. I have made choices that are dishonorable to you and that are not consistent with your character in me. They're not consistent with the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And Lord, this morning I confess of all of those and I repent, Lord, and because of your great mercy, I receive your forgiveness. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be active in my spirit and in my life and that I will live a life that honors you from this day forward glorifying Christ in how I live, giving you glory in everything I do and say.
Please accept my, my repentance, Lord, as I receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.